Welcome back to The Exam Room. I'm your host, Brian Vardabedian. In this episode, I had the chance to sit down with Gerard's Molly Kate and the Chartist Group's Dr. Mark Wenneker to discuss their new white paper, Safe to Return, What Healthcare Leaders Can Learn from Behavioral Health About Relieving Anxiety and Cultivating Stability. And so this white paper that we will link to below in the show notes served as a foundation for what was really an interesting discussion about communication strategy as it relates to COVID. Now, I always joke that I'm a communicator who became a physician, but I'll tell you what, I was completely intimidated by the uh, brilliance of these two guests and what they know and the depth of their understanding around hospital and healthcare communication. It was uh, awe-inspiring. So grab a pen, grab a pencil, grab a piece of paper, take notes, and I hope you enjoy. Mark Wenneker and Molly Kate, welcome to the exam room. Thank you. For the listeners, this episode stems from a white paper that I came across produced by the Chartist Group and Gerard Incorporated, and it's called Safe to Return, What Healthcare Leaders Can Learn from Behavioral Health About Relieving Anxiety and Cultivating Stability. And I think this is probably the most comprehensive blueprint for enterprise communication strategy that I've seen to date. So I'm excited to have you guys here. Mark, can you tell us a little bit about the paper and how it came about? Sure. Thanks again for inviting us to talk about this really important subject and the white paper. You know, while much of the initial focus on addressing the pandemic was really around the preventing the spread of the disease and creating capacity in the healthcare industry to care for patients with the virus, it also became clear to us that from very early on that we needed to address the behavioral health impact of COVID-19. And what wasn't anticipated was how concerns about contracting the virus would influence decisions about getting needed health care. So we started seeing surveys, including that from Gerard, that revealed that a significant number of people were delaying care. And there were reports being published about decreased utilization of life-saving procedures, people that were waiting in their homes with symptoms of heart attacks, not going to the hospital EDs, due to the anxiety and fear of whether it was really safe to see a doctor or go to the hospital. And in speaking with a colleague and, a, and our co-author, Dr. Mendoza, who's a psychiatrist and a leader in the field of behavioral health integration, he noted that this was happening in his practice. And we both discussed the efforts of many organizations to bring back patients to care. And organizations have done an amazing job of making it safe to come back to care. But we realized that there was something missing in the communication with patients and staff to allay that fear and anxiety. That's the point of the paper. And we were fortunate to work with Gerard, who, as you know, is an expert in the field of communication strategy and healthcare. And we decided to partner to uh, create this paper. And in doing this, we brought a variety of types of expertise and perspectives. The great collaboration with Dr. Mendoza, who brings clinical expertise. And then my colleagues, David Schifrin and Molly from Gerard, who bring expertise around effective communication. And then Chartis with our understanding of the healthcare organizations. Yeah. And you know, what I think I loved about this is the fact that it takes a really prescriptive approach to uh, strategy and communication. And I can tell you as a person running outpatient operations, it was, it was tricky. We really didn't know what we were doing. And I know talking to folks around the country, not everyone had done it right. And I think how we frame and position perception and reality as we're seeing is having huge downstream effects. Molly, this may be a good time to offer some context. What did Gerard and the Chartist Group do briefly? 
Yeah, uh, I'll jump in and talk about Gerard first. And uh, let me start by echoing Mark's thanks and gratitude for having us on today to talk about this. We appreciate it. So our firm is exclusively dedicated to the healthcare provider space. We are a strategic communications firm among the top 10 in the United States. And as it pertains, I'm going to kind of couch my description of our firm as it pertains to, to this topic. We work with um, healthcare companies, hospitals, and health systems in moments of significant change, challenge, or opportunity. So we are brought in to craft a communication strategy that typically spans you know, internal and external audiences around a significant moment in the life of that organization. Whether it be, you know, a, an opportunity to pursue growth, uh, a merger or acquisition, some sort of organizational redesign, new strategy, anything that triggers a wave of changes inside an organization and, and outside. Because as we all know, everyone has a vested interest in the delivery of care. So our job typically is to help organizations craft the right message craft the communication strategies that are going to be applicable and most effective per audience, and then really, you know, cadence that out over the appropriate time period, because people can only digest so much information, you know, at, at one time, and they also want to know how it relates to them, how it pertains to them. And I think as we thought about this paper, what we have seen is a real challenge from many of our clients of all shapes and sizes to keep their workforce engaged in, in a positive way, to stabilize them, to get patients comfortable with coming back into the care setting to deliver care. So, you know, we're in a marathon, if you will. Um, and typically these moments of great change are sprints. But here we are in a prolonged, you know, very challenging very complex, truly unprecedented situation where we're asking people to deliver care in a way that they never have before. Anxiety is at an all-time high, I think, inside and outside organizations. So that's a little bit about us and sort of what we're seeing out there. So you're perfectly positioned to deal with the crisis around the pandemic, right? Yes. Mark, Chartist Group, briefly, what do they do? Yeah, thanks, Brian. So the Chartist Group, we are a comprehensive advisory and analytics services firm, a consulting firm, and we're dedicated uh, only to the healthcare industry. We have over 400 consultants, and our work is in a variety of areas. We have expertise in strategic planning, performance improvement, informatics and technology, health analytics, and the, with the recent joining of Gerard to our firm, communication strategy. Our clients include uh, some of the largest and well, most well-known leading academic medical centers, integrated delivery networks, children's hospitals, as well as other healthcare service organizations, uh, and we have a national practice. My role, actually, I just wanted to mention is um, I'm both a partner with the firm, but also I lead our behavioral health services segment, which means that we also work with healthcare organizations to help them define appropriate behavioral health strategy, figure out how to invest limited resources to maximize the, the value of the investment they're making in uh, providing behavioral health care to their patients and to the community. And we do work in, in many other service lines as well, as well as cardiovascular care, oncology, musculoskeletal. But the work that we're focusing on today is around behavioral health. Excellent. So let's talk about the reality of what people and even health professionals are experiencing. Molly, can you describe some of the downstream effects of the pandemic on health systems? And maybe, Mark, you could sort of follow and offer a little bit of clinical context. Um, and I know this is maybe a lot of this is centered on patients, but it certainly affects healthcare professionals as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. So some kind of big picture statistics that I'll throw out there, which probably won't come as a surprise, frankly, but I still think that they are dramatic and fascinating and worth mentioning. So according to Time Magazine, you know, more than a quarter of American adults meet the criteria for serious mental distress and illness. We've seen about a tenfold increase in clinical depression from around 5% to 50% on a nationwide basis. And during late June, according to the CDC, four in 10 U.S. adults reported struggling with mental health or substance abuse. So as that relates to healthcare, uh, Mark mentioned earlier in our conversation that we um, deployed a national survey a couple months ago. And what we found in that survey is we broke out healthcare workers um, specifically and their families. And what we found is that they are feeling, you know, less safe than the general population even. So that, that's, I found that to be fascinating when I read it in the, in the paper. That's crazy. Yeah, it really is. And, and so, you know, you have to think about the challenges that they bring to work every day and then mm-hmm. also the influences that they have on, on those around them. And so, you know, what we see really, if, you know, we look at it from the perspective of our clients who are healthcare leaders that are trying to, you know, they're in this, this moment, right, where they're trying to, to be the very best that they can be. They're trying to rise to this challenge, rise mm-hmm. to the occasion. As I mentioned earlier, typically that's more of a sprint. And now, you know, we're, we're months and months into this. And there's, you know, really not an end in sight. We're, we're in the middle of a, of a surge that's expected to continue throughout the winter. Mm-hmm. And so what we see is, you know, how do we, we're trying to help healthcare leaders every day who wake up and want to know how can they bring some sense of stability to their workforce? Um, how can they get their health? You know, there's, there's motivation issues, there's anxiety issues, there's um, how do I provide the best care possible, which I think every nurse and every physician wants to do, but how do you sustain that, you know, during such a, a time of, you know, increasingly complex clinical issues in a, just a challenging environment from a operational standpoint, a financial standpoint, et cetera. So, and, and we, we've also seen this remarkable sort of collapse in revenue for hospitals because we're seeing far fewer cardiac procedures and things like that, right? Yeah, that's a great point. And so, you know, on top of trying to figure out how to take care of all these patients and stop the the spread of the disease and keep their workers safe mm-hmm. and and motivated and calmed down, they're also communicating significant financial challenges and responses to those challenges. So, the way that they, you know, pay their physicians, for example, or early retirement for some colleagues, you know, budget modification of any kind is also happening right now. So that adds to the complexity of the communications challenge for sure. So for either of you, getting to the core here, th- this issue of uh, people not coming to the hospital, do we have any idea what people were really afraid of? Did did you get into that in the white paper or do we know? Yeah, I mean, I there's been research done on this. People are scared that they're going to get the disease. They're scared that they're going to bring that disease, uh, both workers and patients, uh, they're going to contract the disease and bring that disease, the virus, to their uh, to their family members. I mean, that's what they're scared about. And this is despite all of the good work that's being done by healthcare organizations to make sure that it's safe to be able to receive care there. Yeah. You know, it's remarkable the change that we've had to kind of go through over the past six months. I think about my work here at Texas Children's Hospital and just, I mean, just the transition to telemedicine, I mean, has been hugely stressful for both myself and my patients. I mean, obviously it's created opportunities, but it's the, the change we've gone through has been just, just crazy. 
telemedicine, I think, by the way, is a great example of, you know, those of us that have been in healthcare for a long time know that we've had the technology to be able to deliver more Mm -hmm. care virtually for quite some time, but we haven't been able to get people to adopt it, patients to adopt it. And as you um, so eloquently pointed out, the workflow challenges associated from a clinical standpoint of delivering that care and what the patient experience looks like online has also been a challenge. So, you know, in, in thinking about the impact that COVID has had on the acceleration of like the digitalization of healthcare delivery is stunning and how quickly that has happened. And I think just to kind of put another log on the fire here, that's another layer of complexity, you know, to add to the equation here. So leaders are asking employees to do their job a lot differently than they have before in the midst of, of a challenge that is producing anxiety, you know, heightened awareness, all the things that, that we've talked about. So uh, I think the virtual health piece is also something we definitely should think about from, you know, the, the holistic change perspective. Yeah, we talk about all the, the problems that have come from this crisis, but sometimes a crisis can force us to, like this, adopt new technologies and new ways of doing things, which I think is a huge upside. Yes. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that probably the the professional discipline that has most benefited by the transition to telehealth has been behavioral health. Right. And it makes sense, right? It's not a procedural oriented specialty in general. And so it, it makes sense. And also the industry itself has had a, over 20 years of experience using telephonic, video, asynchronous mm-hmm. communication. But that's not to say there aren't challenges of how do you actually interact with patients talking about very complex, deeply personal issues using virtual platform as opposed to in person. At Texas Children's, we had this huge, huge spike in adoption during the first wave, and we were almost 100% virtual. And now we've, we're, we're trying to figure out and sort out within the field of pediatric gastroenterology what's appropriate for... Uh, in real life visit and what is appropriate for, or, or what's appropriate for telemedicine visits. So it's, we're, we're constantly adapting and changing and pivoting. Yeah. The one thing I wanted to add, Brian, regarding this question that Molly answered around, you know, what we're seeing in the industry in terms of the impact of the pandemic on anxiety and fear, I want to note, and I think there's been a lot of recent uh, articles written about this, is that we're entering into probably the most concerning phase of the pandemic. Not only is the fact that the the pandemic has had a greater impact on the number of cases, the number of people dying than any time before this, but we're also entering into the winter months. And from a behavioral health standpoint, that means that uh, people who have seasonal affective disorder, who really need to have the daylight, you know, the many hours of daylight, this is the worst time for them even before the pandemic hit. And then we also have to acknowledge the challenges of social isolation mm-hmm. that in general have been a really a problem and a challenge for people either who haven't had behavioral health problems before and now are are, are suffering from them or people who whose who's behavioral health issues, anxiety, depression have been kept at bay, uh, have, been, have been managed, but now are dealing with the fact that they can't see their loved ones, be with their loved ones, particularly during the holidays. That's going to that's gonna exacerbate uh, those problems. Mark, can I ask a question about impact on providers? You know, it's interesting that in the, I mean, maybe the, the years leading up to 2020, burnout was front and center as an issue among physicians, and we felt so undervalued. And Throughout the summer, we saw these images of world citizens on rooftops banging pans 
you know, at seven o'clock at night or whatever. Has COVID kind of bolstered the resolve of the medical profession or has it really kind of fueled burnout or do you think we're sort of neutral on it? Well, I think it's probably both. You know, uh, healthcare, I think as Molly has said, healthcare professionals in general are facing an unprecedented situation. Early on in the pandemic, we published a white paper specifically focused on the impact of the pandemic on healthcare workers, on their mental health, and how to support them through this crisis. Interestingly, as we reviewed the literature on the impact of the pandemic on healthcare workers, frontline workers in general, most of that research up until this pandemic actually came out of China and the countries that had been impacted by previous pandemics. And so now we're starting to learn ourselves about what the, what this means. But healthcare workers are at significant risk due to the, as we said before, the worry about virus exposure for them and their families. And as Molly mentioned, the changes in workload and the potential for what's called in the industry compassion fatigue. In that article, we outlined five strategies to support workers, including clear communication, but they also need resources and they need mental health resources. And I just want to note that many healthcare organizations have done a terrific job of providing support to healthcare workers and their families in, in managing this crisis. And I, just two examples are University of Washington and Mount Sinai. To get back to the question, Brian, about is this bolstering the resolve of the profession or fueling burnout? I think that what we have seen, what we have witnessed, is the amazing commitment and resilience of healthcare professionals, nurses, physicians, and other professionals in our industry. Incredibly impressive. However, it's also equally important that we cannot take for granted the fact that this has a major impact on their lives and can truly exacerbate any potential for burnout. So we need to figure out those strategies to mitigate the impact of burnout. Yeah, I think as as medicine has become progressively industrialized, the attention of the end worker, i.e. the physician, has sort of been lost. And I think that COVID has maybe resurrected that, yeah, that need or that place for attention to the mental health of the end provider, as you suggested. No question. You know, I think it's interesting. I don't know if you guys saw this on NPR, but the Association of American Medical Colleges just announced that they're seeing record numbers of applicants to medical schools, and they've called this the the Fauci effect. Uh, <laughs> kind of interesting. So, I think these maybe these young uh, younger college kids are are seeing this and seeing this as a place to be. So, I found that really encouraging. It's it's re- truly wonderful, and leaders like Dr. Fauci are really role models, um, not just as as healthcare professionals, but as as true leaders in, in our society who who care deeply about the welfare of the people of this country and the world. And, and I can certainly understand why, why college students would be, would be inspired by people like Dr. Fauci to, to want to follow in their footsteps. So we've seen this, this dramatic fall in the number of patients seeking care, and we've seen and discussed here some of the, some of the impact on the pandemic on, on patients and providers. What I want to get into a little bit is, is how as leaders and as doctors as you discuss in the in the white paper, we address these these kind of emotions of fear and anxiety and foster stability. How do we, you know, how do we make people feel more comfortable? And so maybe we can just sort of talk about this prescriptive approach to man, you know, managing anxiety and fear that you guys outline. And so you guys come up with four 
I guess, four clinical concepts, as you call them, to, to allay anxiety and fear. And Molly, do you want to lead us off or Mark on the first one being to create a holding environment? Yeah, Mark, go ahead. So the basic psychologic concept for this is that people who feel anxious about making any decisions, particularly ones that impact on their well-being, really need to feel safe, to feel nurtured. They need a nurturing space so that they're safe to both understand how they're feeling, to really reflect on that, and to be able to express openly what they're feeling. That's a very that's the first step. So as for healthcare providers or for healthcare leaders, there needs to be that quote unquote space available so people can truly feel comforted and and feel that they can actually talk about what they're concerned about. Yeah, I love the fact that you guys have made this first reference rooted in childhood development as a pediatrician. I just want to add that. (laughs) It's an important concept. And secondly, you guys say we want to convert general anxiety to manageable fear. Explain that. So anxiety is a really tough problem. And part of the reason that, it, that it's, it's so challenging and so painful is that people who have anxiety don't really oftentimes know what's really triggering it, what's causing it, and what they can do to, to resolve it. And so one of the important clinical concepts is to work with patients, to work with people who have anxiety, to try to really ferret out what's really driving this. And so manageable fear is in some ways unpacking that anxiety to be able to understand the specifics about what people are afraid of. And then you can start developing the intervention strategies to really address those specific issues. So you're acknowledging that fear is actually pretty reasonable in this situation, and it's just a matter of separating it, right? Absolutely. And it's also important that patients and the public understand that they're not alone, right? I mean, that's that oftentimes is very helpful. Mm-hmm. That people don't feel like they're the only ones. And, and even providers in the right context can share, look, you know, I, I get it. I get why, why you would be concerned. I think trying to kind of be in their space is, is really an, another important way that people can feel comforted and safe to be able to talk about what's going on. One of the uh, central fears that I heard from my staff and my peers during that first peak was the fear of economic loss. We have young female nurses in our clinic, and there was this fear that if one of them got an exposure or was COVID positive, you know, the daycares were closed, you know, there was this whole cascade that if somebody gets it, the, the clinic's going to shut down and it would impact us all individually, economically. And that was a, that was a real fear for, for these single moms and these staff members who had a lot at stake. Brian, I'll, I'll jump in there. And this is a, a concept that we talk about in the paper. And, and it's a great example of what you just shared of the need to understand where I'm going to use some political terms here, the need to understand on a continual basis where your constituents are, you Mm -hmm. know, what's important to them, what are their, their fears. So one of the things that we've been recommending with clients is that, that they do, you know, increased listening, surveying, polling, however they quote unquote actively listen to their employees. There's a number of ways to do that and their physicians that now is the time to be doing that on a 
more regular basis, right? Because this thing is moving so quickly and the impact of it, you know, we can't predict, you know, where this is going to go or what the fears are of people, what they're going to be as this continues to unfold. So what you just shared, you know, is a great example of how this impacts people on a much different level on an individual basis, depending on where they are in their life and what they have at home and, you know, their, their workload and all these variables that are that are hard to know. So I think, you know, one piece of advice I would give to to healthcare leaders is to really spend some time in an intentional way to actively listen and know so that you can then respond to that. I think a lot of times historically leaders and and even clinicians, you know, we think about communications as a one-way street. Here's some important information that you need to know. I'm going to share it with you in a way that's easy to understand. That's all great, but we're not in that time anymore. We are in this together. And so, you know, there needs to be an exchange of of information, an exchange of, you know, fears of what are on the flip side, what are the bright spots that we can use to to motivate employees with, motivate physicians to get patients to come back. You know, it works both ways as well. So Uh, I think thinking about communications at a more strategic level and thinking about it as something that has to happen on an ongoing basis and fit the needs of your constituents is, is a way, is a shift and a way to think about it in this pandemic. We think we understand what the fears and needs are of the, uh, the workers, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of times I, I hear every healthcare leader say this, it's hard, it's hardest to know what's on the mind of people on the very front lines. And yet they're the most important, uh, you know, part of the equation. I mean, they're directly touching the patient and providing the care. They're working so hard, you know, and, and they, uh, it's oftentimes the hardest to reach them and hardest to know what's in their minds and in their hearts. And so I, I think that's a, a challenge, but I definitely think there, there's a way, way to do it. I see organizations doing that, you know, quite successfully and, and beautifully in the, in the pandemic. Of course, this is all easier said than done because you, when you work at the uh, largest children's hospital in the United States, getting the message out can be tough. Yeah. So you also say that we need to identify the most appropriate messengers. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So in kind of similar to politics, which I know is, isn't probably the best word to use right now, but it's just a given our current environment. <laughs> it's relatable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a good example though. So, you know, we, there's a saying in our business that, you know, people trust the message the messenger, excuse me, more than they do the message. So, and doctors, I'm going to pick on both of you for a moment, are a great example. In my experience, they really only listen to other clinicians and other doctors. So uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's something I see, you know, time and time again and over the course of my career, but it's true. You know, nurses are going to trust someone who, who we would send out to talk to nurses. Frontline nurses is going to be different than who we would send out to, to gain trust among, you know, our medical staff or patients or the community, you know, and then within the community, there are business leaders, there are moms, there are religious leaders, et cetera. So, you know, again, I'm going to advocate over the course of this podcast that people really expand how they think about communications in terms of its powerfulness, but also its complexity. And so take the time to think through not just what the message is. Everybody always wants to spend a lot of time there. And that's, that is an excellent source of time and focus. In addition, I would say equally as important though, is who are we sending out? Because people, you know, trust other people before they, first and foremost, before they're able to absorb what they're sharing. And Molly, if if we could just help me with this question, and I know this is probably, I'm asking you to sort of 
unpack your entire consulting business in 90 seconds. But if you look at the largest children's hospital in the U.S. and the the extent of three hospitals, how does how do you structure a critic you know an approach like this to messaging? I mean, does is it top down? Do you like mm-hmm. how do you even start with that? Yeah. So, you know, a couple of things come to mind. One way is to think about breaking apart, and I'm just, this will be a little bit similar to what I was just saying, but breaking apart the constituent base. So at a children's hospital, you know, who are the the constituents inside the organization? Let's start there. That's always the most important because if, you know, in our business, we say, if you don't get the talk right inside first, then everything else is a waste of time. So I think about it in terms of constituent bases, you know, inside the organization. So in my mind, there are things on one hand that are going to rally everyone. You know, I think children's hospitals are places where there is such a strong sense of mission and purpose and passion and a desire to serve the most, you know, critical and neediest of audiences. So, you know, thinking about that collective sense of mission and how we can tap into that. That's sort of one layer. And then another layer is, I guess, the kind of the flip side of the coin would be thinking about those constituents on a individual basis. You know, if we unpack those layers, people inside a children's hospital are going to care about different things. Nurses are always going to care about, you know, do they have the resources that they need to provide the best care possible to their patients? Do they have an open line of communication to the C-suite? Do they feel valued? Do they feel supported? But their focus is always going to be, you know, on that direct patient care line. And then, you know, clinicians, I'm sure you could speak to that, have a different set of of needs and, and relevant concerns. So, you know... I think finding something overarching that rallies people that you can fall back on as a leader that's going to get them motivated that's or re-motivate them, reinvigorate them in this case, because I do think it's an ongoing, you know, marathon situation, sharing those bright spots. Are there stories? Are there examples that we could share of, you know, how collectively we rose to the occasion and helped a patient uh, saved a life or, you know, what? there's tons of examples uh, in health systems. And then equally just important, though, is, is breaking apart that more complex side of, you know, diversifying your constituents, figuring out who they trust, what messages are going to be relevant to them. Your example that you shared earlier of the, the nurse that had, you know, childcare needs, you know, that's, that's a great example of, of how once we break apart those bases, if we understand what people's concerns are, we can craft a message that, that speaks directly to them. That makes perfect sense. So, kind of a global a global communication strategy, augmented by a uh, focused constituent based targeted. Strategy, yeah, right? I think you know, and this is a little bit of a soapbox moment I'm having, so I'll stop after this. But I, <laughs> I think that you know, one of the things that I love about healthcare, and I suspect that both of you do too, is that it's such a mission driven. I was going to say industry, but, you know, uh, a calling, I think, for a lot of people in in healthcare. So, you know, that's unique. That's something that we don't have in technology or, you know, other segments of the of the U.S. economy. So how can we build that up? How can we, you know, pull that out in people and create an environment where it's honored and, and we're showing them how much it's valued and how, you know, illustrating the powerfulness of healthcare delivery? I mean, I, I think that's unique to our industry. And one of the the cool things that's really happened in this pandemic is if you look across the country, you guys probably have some there at Texas Children's, but there's these great kind of grassroots examples of campaigns that honor caregivers in a way that we we haven't seen before and hold them up and position them as heroes. So, you know, I think 
that's really something unique to healthcare that that we can tap into and goes a long way because if people feel valued, if they feel appreciated and where their heart is in it, then that's the context we need to help them understand why all these other changes have to take place. Why do we have to change the way we pay our physicians or all of the this minutia of of work that is happening and has to change, you know, if there's context to it and there's something to fall back on that that rallies them, it goes a long way. That is uh, such a great approach. That's so approachable. And I could almost bottle that and send it around to our <laughs> leadership. And I don't know who wants to handle this, but this is kind of an open-ended question, but are, are doctors good communicators? <laughs> I don't know uh, if I want to touch this one. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, 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 I'll, maybe I'll start. <laughs> maybe I'll start. Molly, you can add your perspective. You know, obviously we can't, I can't comment on all doctors. I think our hope is that doctors are good communicators. I think we would all agree that to be a good doctor, you have to be a good communicator. It's not enough. It's not enough to have all the knowledge in the textbook, right? To, to be book smart, to know, know how to diagnose and treat an illness. If a doctor can't listen effectively, understand a patient's symptoms and concerns, and then help them understand how to manage and treat their condition, they can't be a good doctor. But with regard to the pandemic, you know, this has created unique challenges for physicians in communicating with their patients. So there's never been a time during our professional careers when we've had to address this issue of fear and anxiety of receiving care on this scale and for a problem that we've never faced before in this country. So what we've tried to do here is to provide healthcare providers with some additional tools to be able to address this specific set of issues so that they can add that to their armamentarium of, of skills around being good communicators. That, that's really, really what the focus of this paper was. Yeah, you know, I'm just, uh, I just thought of this, but to add insult to injury, one of the things that came about right in the middle of this was the 21st Century Cures Act. So November 1st, we started uh, re- opening all of our notes to patients and instantaneously releasing uh, lab results. And so in the middle of this, we've had to create kind of strategies for our local providers on on how to do that. So it's been a crazy time. One thing I'll add there is um, in in the communications world, we look a lot at um, the trust factor. There's a lot of interesting studies that happen every year on uh, who people trust. We also tested this in our survey, in both surveys that we've done in the course of the pandemic. And so, you know, trust is is critical, right, to successful communications. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, uh, you know, Americans are distrustful of of just about everybody except for doctors. And so I think that that is a real bright spot. You know, we look at things like the government, the media, large corporations, you know, lots of, of different folks that we test the the impact of trust on and who people trust. And hands down, physicians are, are a little bit of a white knight, I would say, in that people really, mm-hmm. you know, uh, trust them. They think the information is going to be fact, factual, data-driven, you know, clinically sound. And so, I hope that, and again, I'm biased, of course, in saying this for full disclosure, but I really hope that, you know, maybe one of the things that COVID will teach us in healthcare is the importance of physicians having good communication skills. I know that's something we see in a, in a lot of medical schools increasingly so, but I think it's really critical that, that doctors, you know, can communicate well with patients and can, um, you know, relay a sense of calm to them. Yeah, that, that trust element was supported by a a Pew Internet Life Project survey that found the same thing. And 
having been involved in social media and healthcare over the past 12 years, one of the early concerns was that, well, people would take, you know, take to uh, social networks for their, uh, for their information. But as you, you said, Molly, they really do ultimately come back to, come back to physicians for that trust. And I think over time too, patients have developed a real healthy relationship with information and they know what they can get from the web and what they can get from their doctor. And so that's a subject for another time. But let me just say the fourth, I think the fourth clinical concept that you guys talk about is create tactics that desensitize people. What does that mean? Mark, you want to take that and I can jump in? Sure. I mean, the concept of desensitization for people who have a clinical concept of phobia is that you expose people to what is creating the anxiety slowly, gradually, so that they become more adapted to it. The concept here, what we've been trying to say here in this paper is that, and I think Molly referred to this before, this isn't a one-shot, you know, communication effort, right? You can't just put out one PSA and then figure out that you've actually resolved the issues, you've touched people in the way you need to. You need to be careful about how you stage the communication. You need to start out with general information, reaching out to people, acknowledging their concerns, and over time, introduce information that will increasingly get them to be comfortable with really addressing what the issues are. So it's really around staging the information about being sensitive to how people need to incorporate and process information before they can really act on it. Yeah. So we talk a lot about the cadence of communications as something that that is is important. You know, we've we've talked about the messenger and listening and understanding where constituents are at. And I think, as Mark said, thinking about the the frequency, uh, you know, how often we're communicating. I know, right. and you know, we're all guilty of this. But a lot of times, we think if we say something one time or two times, then people must understand it. And so, there's a seven times rule that we talk about a lot in in our world, which is that you have to repeat something about seven times before people get it and understand it. And as you were talking earlier, Brian, people are now, you know very well equipped in with the flow of information and how to access it and how to, you know, share their opinions on social media platforms, et cetera. So I think for healthcare leaders, I would suggest thinking about your internal communications infrastructure and even externally, but um, I feel like internally is always a good place to start. Think about, you know, what are the multiple mediums that you can deploy to get information Mm -hmm. out? Because it's not just, you know, an email from the CEO or a video or a town hall. It needs to be an ecosystem, if you will, of different vehicles and mediums that work together against a cadence timeline. I think, you know, people can only absorb so much information at once. (laughs) And and that's increasingly hard, you know, because we're just bombarded with it all day. So. That that is a, a huge issue in, you know, large organizations. We, you know, more information is good information, right? And I, certainly with regard to the pandemic, we have to be careful about that cadence that you speak about because I can tell you firsthand, it it, it can numb you, yeah. those, uh, the messaging, right? Um, can, I'm going to take this forward just a little bit and think a little about what we learned here and where we're going. But Molly, I don't know, maybe this is a good question for you, but given your work with some of the largest healthcare systems in the U.S. Are there any, any lessons that we've kind of learned from the COVID experience that we'll kind of take forward? That's a great question. There are lots of them. I think that, um, you know, 
So one of the the big challenges that we're looking at right now in the new year are vaccines. And so how do mm-hmm. we apply the lessons that we've learned over the last however long we've been in this thing, seven, eight months, into vaccines? So, you know, how to how to communicate that, I think, is is the obvious thing. But then also if we unpack that a bit, how do we help people feel safe around accessing vaccines and making the decision of whether or not to get one? As a society, how do we, you know, figure out who who accesses those first and what's the reasoning behind that? So I think I know that's not a direct answer to your question, but when you were talking about being forward looking, right. it made me think about that. So in terms of the lessons that we've learned, I think, you know, Mark mentioned this a little bit when we were talking about doctors, but I think we've we've learned that you know, healthcare providers, so physicians, nurses, hospitals, health systems, and, and those in the outpatient setting as well, we can accomplish really wonderful things when we are rallied behind a cause and a mission. I think mm-hmm. as an industry right now, we're collectively, we're tired and we're anxious as we've talked about. But I think that when we come together and we're rallied to serve, we do that really well. And so, you know, one of the things I think and again, this is biased because I'm a communicator, but I think the value of communications and helping people understand how our organizations, how hospitals and health systems, the government, et cetera, how we're all evolving, you know, in sharing information and getting it into the hands of people that, that need it is really critical. So this, this rise of communications as something that is strategic, that is important, that is, you know, not just need to know information, but how do we move people? How do we convince them to do things? How do we persuade? them? How do we, you know, stabilize them? How do we increase their resiliency, you know, through the power of communications? To me, that's something that I really hope will will stick long after after COVID is over. And the, the power of, of what healthcare providers can accomplish when they come together. We can call that one of the successes kind of, of, uh, of the pandemic. Yeah, because, you know, um, I'll stop talking after this, but it's always like you guys, you know, I go to these conferences back when we had those over the years and you hear about how far healthcare is behind every other industry and how, you know, if we don't change this, we don't change that, we're going to, you know, Amazon's going to figure out healthcare or uh, JP Morgan, et cetera. And so I think, you know, what, what really excites me as someone that's been in healthcare a long time is we've seen our ability to, to rise the occasion and change and transform and innovate and seen the importance of not just communications, but also of hospitals and health systems and doctors and, you know, why our society needs them. Yeah, I think it's been truly inspiring to see, and, and there's a lot of reports that we, we learned in a very short, as a profession, in very short time frame, how to manage patients who are coming to the hospital. I mean, it's profoundly different how patients are managed now than they were when, at the beginning of the pandemic. We understand some of the treatment modalities. We understand what the course of illness is. We understand how better how to advise patients. I mean, that happened in a very quick way. And it's because our profession has come together. We've learned from through science. We've communicated effectively with each other. That is truly inspirational. You know, I think Joey Ito from the MIT Media Lab uh, once suggested that there are three conditions that define our era. Uh, asymmetry, complexity, and uncertainty. And I think that for me, and certainly in our organization, so much of this has been about managing uncertainty. And that's something I think in my 20 years in medicine, I've never seen an organization do. And so that's been something that's been remarkable to watch. Yeah, agreed. Molly, maybe you can tell us how people can get their hands on this white paper or learn more about Gerard or the Chartist Group? Yeah, I think the the best and fastest way would be uh, our website, 
um, which is gerardinc.com. We have a, a section on the website called Our Thinking, and the the white paper lives under there. Is in addition to a couple other you know thought leadership properties that we have there um, for healthcare leaders. Molly Kate and Dr. Mark Weneker, thank you for being so generous with your time here today. You know, this paper I think can really serve as a jumping off point for so many fascinating discussions around management in times of uncertainty, as I suggested. And I think it can really serve as a blueprint for high-level communication strategy in any crisis beyond COVID. Thank you guys for your leadership in creating this white paper and bringing such a provocative dialogue into the exam room. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll, I'll have one last plug for Mark. I believe the white paper is also on the Chartist uh, website as well. Chartistgroup.com. Chartist.com. Yes. Thank you, Mel. Perfect. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you so much. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.